Along with police and prisons, our criminal courts can cause a lot of harm. Should we abolish our criminal court system? And how could we achieve this goal? Welcome to the California Law Review Podcast. Our goal is to provide an accessible and thought-provoking overview of the scholarship we publish. Today, we will be discussing a piece by Matthew Clare and Amanda Wu titled Courts and the Abolition Movement. This is an article published in Issue 1 of Volume 110 in February of 2022. Amanda Woog is the Executive Director of the Texas Fair Defense Project, an organization fighting to end the criminalization of poverty. Matthew Clare is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Sociology at Stanford and holds a courtesy appointment at Stanford Law School. Matt and Amanda, thank you so much for sitting down to speak with us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. So to start, will you give us a quick overview of your central argument in this piece? The central argument in this piece is that prison and police abolition have now become a part of mainstream public conversation, but they're really part of this broader system of violence and racialized control, the prison industrial complex. The courts are actually the pathway for legalizing this violence and control, and they need to be explicitly scrutinized as part of the abolitionist project. The piece is sort of set up by first identifying um, the racist and extractive history of criminal courts in the United States, um, as well as the racist and extractive present of criminal courts in the U.S. Um, And then we highlight sort of fundamental abolitionist principles um, that we refer to and sort of identify in the abolitionist movement more broadly of power shifting, defunding and reinvesting and transformation. And then we apply these principles to the criminal courts. Um, And we do that by drawing on existing grassroots efforts and then also sort of thinking about new possibilities. You begin the article by bringing readers into the room where Breonna Taylor was killed by police. How did the events of that night and the Black Lives Matter movement factor into abolition scholarship? So I think the Black Lives Matter movement broadly, but specifically uh, in 2020, really sort of shifted the conversation around criminal justice reform from a conversation that was really sort of centered on sort of liberal reformist visions um, to centering abolition. Um, And so I think, you know, George Floyd's murder um, and then learning later um, about Breonna Taylor's killing and so many others, Tony McDade um, and you know, Richard Brooks and so many others really catalyzed sort of a um, mass um, and, and multiracial movement um, for racial justice. Um, but then also focusing on how we need to think about abolition in relation to um, this movement. Um, and so people had to start sort of thinking not just about sort of what are the specific criminal justice reforms that they agree with or disagree with, but abolition became something where people started to have to grapple with and actually theorize and think about what does abolition mean um, and what are its possibilities. Um, And so I think Breonna Taylor's killing for us in particular really highlighted the centrality of the criminal courts with respect to the broader sort of massive injustice of Um, the criminal legal system. You know, we hear we had um, a no-knock warrant that was signed in minutes, um, and we had, uh, you know, complete sort of, uh, you know, fabrication from police, really. I mean, uh, with respect to so many things about um, entering her home um, and then killing her um, 
and, and harming her boyfriend who was there at the time as well. Yeah, I think I just want to highlight really quickly one thing Matt said, which was focusing in on the no knock warrants, because I think for us, that kind of opened up the conversation more into the role of the courts. And of course, you know, warrants are executed by the police, um, but they're signed by a judge. And now we see, you know, some reforms being put forward around eliminating the use of no knock warrants, which um, reduces the power and authority of police, but it also reduces the power and authority of of courts. Um, so I think it was a really important thing to highlight and segue into the conversation uh, that, that we wanted to have in this article. With respect to courts, your writing segregates the role courts have in legitimizing and enforcing racialized violence by the state. Yet courts have escaped much of the public outcry. Why do you think this is? Um, I think that the courts and lawyers and judges have been very powerfully self-legitimizing in like a you know, deliberate way. Like if you think of the words that are written on courtrooms, like the, you know, the ways that the, the robes and, you know, the use of Latin and, uh, you know, just kind of the air and culture around courts has been very intentionally legitimizing. And that's been extremely powerful. And that does, that's not even to mention law and order and like how media has also like glorified and legitimized the system. Um, I also think of like, I think it was Chief Justice Roberts who used the balls and strikes metaphor, this um, mythology around objectivity that the courts bring. So there's extremely powerful cultural media, self-perpetuated really narrative um, that that has protected the courts in a lot of ways. I think the other thing is that they're not as visible as the police. The police patrol, they're in our neighborhoods. We see them literally all over the place. Cell phone cameras have made police violence a lot more visible to you know, mass numbers of people. Um, courts in theory are accessible, albeit not exactly in COVID times or not as accessible as they should be, but they're really not watched or as visible. And that's part of why I think court watch is so important. So bringing visibility to these institutions is incredibly important. Um, but they're just not as, as, as visible as, as the police are in our day-to-day lives. Yeah, I want to pick up on the visibility point. I think that's really central here. You know, if we look at George Floyd in particular, right, the visibility of his murder, the citizen-generated sort of uh, camera footage and also statements um, of the experience and trauma that people on the street witnessed of of that murder. Um, But then, you know, George Floyd's life was so tied up in the courts. And we don't know much about that at all, because the courts are so um, hidden and and sort of the machinations of the courts are. And so I think that is really central to why courts have often escaped scrutiny. But on the mythology part, too, here, you know, I think Amanda really has um, really expanded my understanding here about the the mytho- mythologizing that we do um, with respect to the courts. And I think that's really spot on. And I think it's also driven to some extent um, by the fact that, you know, sort of court outcomes are watched a lot. Um, you know, like, like um, even though they're hidden, generally courts, the everyday functioning of courts, the routine processing of the 17 million cases that go through state courts every year, right? We don't know anything about most of them. Um, but we do have every now and then on, 
you know, the media sort of news channels will watch a court case very closely. And then we take as sort of everyday people, we take sort of um, ideas or knowledge about the myths of the courts from those sort of uh, really central or highly identifiable court cases. And so the most you know, one of the most recent significant ones for this conversation, of course, is Derek Chauvin's uh, murder trial. In here, right, we have an outcome where it appears as if the courts, you know, got it right for the first time. And so that can help to mythologize the idea that maybe we might get justice, right, in the court system. But of course, the millions of other cases, not of police abuse, but the routine millions of other cases, um, and then also the many cases of police abuse, right, the the denominator there um, is actually a pretty large, and in most of those cases, um, do not end in the way the Derek Chauvin case ended, where we get a conviction of a police officer. So I think that's another reason why the court sort of escapes scrutiny is because of these highly identifiable cases that then help to further the mythology that you might get justice in the court system. I just want to add to one thing that Matt said about that, which is like, that is such a self-selected group already, because those are mostly cases that go to trial. So like most, you know, criminal cases don't even go to trial or don't have close to as much process as we see in the cases that are, you know, much more scrutinized and more famous. So not only do we have ideas about how justice is served, but just the amount of process or the skillful lawyering or all those things, they're really um, exceptions, the cases that end up being in, um, like really kind of in public scrutiny and in public view. How has evidence of police violence that is brought to light through public scrutiny of the police been received by the public courts? I think, um, what's intrigued me and what is problematic, I think about on one hand, we have a lot of sort of evidence increasingly of police violence and abuse through body cam footage, and then also through um, sort of resident and citizen generated um, footage. But often it doesn't make its way into the court process. You know, um, either it's excluded uh, or it's minimized, um, you know, um, or, you know, we saw sort of a lot of the, you know, this wasn't footage, but it was sort of articulations of how people experienced um, policing or experience another person's policing. So witnesses um, from the community are often delegitimized compared to police testimony, right? And so police testimony is sort of thought of as legitimate. Um, there are officers, right? They're sworn in, whereas uh, everyday people are thought of as illegitimate. And so while we have um, sort of citizen-generated um, visuals and, and reporting from their own experiences of police abuse and violence, I think the courts ultimately legitimate police uh, testimony over that of everyday people. Matt, you point out some egregious examples of police protectionism, including exclusion or minimization of evidence, delegitimization of the experiences of, of everyday people. How do you think the court reconciles those outcomes with its own behavior? This question reminded me, and I went back to McCleskey versus Kemp, which I don't think I've read since law school, um, but it was a death penalty case in the late 1980s, um, I think challenging George's use of the death penalty. And um, there was this you know, multi-year study done that's known as the Baldus study that showed a correlation between 
um, if someone is sentenced to death and race and re- and race of the victim in particular. Um, so if the victim was white, there was a much greater likelihood. And the greatest likelihood is if you had the person who was accused was black and the victim was was white. That's when you have the greatest likelihood of someone being sentenced to death. The evidence was like overwhelming in this study. And the court, and this is the dissent's take on the majority opinion was really um, that the court said we can't have too much justice. So like if this were if this is what it would take to say that we couldn't have the death penalty, then our entire justice system would be on the line. And so I think there's like a really pragmatic approach that judges have where it's like, you know, and you don't see this necessarily in the way opinions are written, but most of the the court decisions that are coming down around the stuff are not in written opinion. They're in like the decisions that make that courts will make, you know, often orally on the bench and like day to day process. Um, but I think there really is like a, you know, if we allow this to be a real challenge in this case or um, it, with this law or this system, we're like opening up the floodgates. And so buried in there is this knowledge that the system itself is really operating in the way that like Matt and I talk about in our article. So I, th- I think it's a fear of too much justice. And I think that explains as well the way that um, procedural challenges um, have made it so that you can't get many substantive claims in front of federal or appellate courts. So basically, you know, something will be tossed out on some procedural reason, whether it's like an EDPA statute of limitations or um, something wasn't raised in the trial court. So we're seeing a lot of courts, I think, turn to process as reasons not to actually address the substantive claims, which are that the system is wrecking violence in an extremely unjust way upon millions of people um, in marginalized communities. So I really think it's a fear of too much justice. I think it's a very pragmatic thing in a lot of ways, which of course wouldn't it wouldn't be talked about this way by many judges, but I think that's underlying a lot of the behavior and decisions. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And I think that really sort of highlights also that judges, you know, in their everyday sort of decision making and thinking about police and the police officers who routinely appear in front of them and in their courtrooms, right? It's hard for them to think about, um, and they sort of have a cognitive sort of, um, um, not desire, but uh, willingness to not see police violence as systemic and structural um, and see it really as a case of sort of individual bad apples or police, right? So sort of as Amanda was saying, they are willing um, or unwilling um, to provide, right, for the, uh, or or believe that police uh, could be systemically unjust because then that would allow for too much justice. That means policing as an institution is a problem, right? Um, That means that it's not just an individual police officer like Derek Chauvin who is bad and sort of who is aberrant in doing something that police shouldn't do, whereas the rest of policing is good. It's actually that this is uh, sort of inherent to policing and this is what policing allows, right? Um, And so I think sort of the deference to police officers about sort of their sort of fear, right? And sort of being able to justify um, violence, various forms of violence um, and sort of the deference to sort of the evidence that they bring and their credibility and their testimony is really sort of a deference to policing as an institution and realizing that 
if we start to think about and critique uh, the idea that police have sort of systemically been lying or been fabricating evidence or surveilling certain communities, then, you know, there's no way to move forward other than to abolish policing as an institution, which is something that judges are, are not, uh, most of them are not um, ready for. Before we dive into alternatives or solutions to our current system, you know differences between the civil and criminal courts, including how corporations evade or minimize punishment by remaining largely within the jurisdiction of civil courts. Why do we have these differences, and who is deserving of justice? Yeah, you know, in the piece we talk uh, about civil courts, um, you know, and sort of civil sort of, you know, um, ideas of like liability and reparative law and things like that as potential sort of alternatives to the criminal legal system. You know, um, we don't take a strong sort of position there because we think there are many things that are problematic about the civil system as well, right? Um, sort of civil and administrative laws where we have immigration court and sort of the uh, violence of immigration, detention and things like that. Um, and then also, you know, um, all sorts of sort of forms of heteropatriarchy and white supremacy exist on the civil side as well. But it was interesting to us too, when we look historically at the divergence between these two court systems, the criminal uh, legal system and the civil side, I mean, we're really drawing on different historians work like Ian Moyne and others. Um, but, you know, the civil system looks different uh, demographically than the criminal system, uh, specifically with respect to race and class. Um, so we sort of have two separate systems and similar things that we have agreed in society, right? Uh, and we sort of said they are harmful behaviors. We have decided some of these harmful behaviors can be adjudicated through the civil legal system uh, with penalties such as monetary damages and the like. Whereas other things that we have thought of as harmful in society must be adjudicated through a criminal legal system with a potential for further harming uh, people through uh, punitive and carceral techniques, not just of prison and jail, but also of surveillance and also forms of extraction um, that sort of uh, aren't as clear because they are fines rather than fees. And so they don't just serve as like a clear sort of indication of punishment but there are also sort of these things that are sort of user pay schemes and the like that are extracting resources sort of slowly from already marginalized people in a very re regressive way. Um, and so anyway, it was really interesting to us to think about historically how these two divergent systems cannot be understood as sort of, uh, you know, just happening. It was really that the criminal legal system is a form of racialized social control that has historically been used to subordinate and extract resources from people of color, specifically black and indigenous people historically in the United States. Um, we can think about sort of the criminal surety system following the civil war and emancipation and sort of the way that white planters relied on the criminal courts as a way to sort of uh, extract um, black labor um, and, and sort of other historical processes that we don't see on the civil side. My one word answer in my notes was capitalism, which um, I know Matt talked about, um, but I, I do think it's really about protecting wealth and wealthy corporations and wealthy people that we see such stark differences, um, you know, that of course is rooted in uh, the history that, that Matt outlined. I was also thinking about how um, 
for aggregating and amassing power, corporations can be understood as individuals. So like with Citizens United, um, but for being held accountable for harms, corporations can't really be thought about in the same, like a similar um, punishment system. And to me, that's just more evidence of who these systems are meant to protect and who they're meant to target. So let's turn now to your argument that we should abolish the criminal courts and how we might go about doing that. To begin, can you explain the distinction between transformative and restorative justice programs? Yeah, sure. So transformation is trying to prevent harm, uh, whereas uh, restorative justice is trying to deal with harm after it's occurred and re uh, sort of uh, rebuild the community out in the wake of harm. You know, I think um, it was really important for us to think carefully about what um, what institutions um, that may already exist or that we need to build um, that could hold people accountable for harm, um, if not the criminal courts. Um, and so, you know, I think restorative justice really is thinking about, okay, uh, you know, through the course of humanity, uh, people have harmed one another um, for a long period of time. And so we need to have a way to um, hold people accountable, um, but not sort of compound extra harm um, in holding them accountable. Um, and so the difference between restorative justice and transformative justice is the idea that um, we're focused here on, crime, on sort of prevention of harm. Uh, rather than focused on accountability after harm has occurred. Um, and so that's really important um, for abolitionists as well, because prevention really is um, central to uh, thinking about what is it going to take to give people the resources, um, you know, whether it's housing to prevent sort of things that we've criminalized as trespassing or loitering, or whether it's uh, healthcare to prevent things that we've criminalized as mental health issues or substance abuse. Um, what are the things that we need to afford people in society to make sure that they can thrive and live healthy lives where they're not harming themselves um, if they don't want to, or uh, others, which is uh, you know obviously very important to not harm others. Um, and so that's, I think, the difference between the two. On the topic of accountability, a stark difference between the criminal system is that despite victim rights oriented narratives, once a prosecutor pursues a case, what the victim wants related to justice often is not factored or is minimized in the sentencing decision. What is the role of democracy compared to individual demands for repair in a restorative approach? So first, restorative justice is very diverse. Different programs do it in different ways. People have different philosophical approaches. You know, some really are survivor-centered, victim-centered, are really focused on, you know, if the survivor doesn't want to do this, we do not begin this process. Others are a little bit more sort of um, insistent on thinking from the beginning of res restoration as a democratic project, even sort of in the determination of, you know, um, how we start these um um, conversations, um, how we encourage people to take part in restorative justice rather than punitive um, forms and processes. So I just want to sort of say that restorative justice, I think, is very diverse, like many philosophies and, and, and practical um, uh, uh, institutions. Um, and so, you know, I think that um, 
no matter how it's initiated, uh, once a survivor has agreed to partake in a restorative justice process, um, community is involved the entire time. And I think it's quite democratic in many ways uh, throughout the process. You know, it's not just the survivor and then the person who harmed them who's present, but it's people who are part of their both of their communities. It's neutral parties and observers typically also who are present who just have a stake in trying to help people repair and help the community move forward. Um, and then also hold the uh, person who has harmed accountable after the restorative justice sessions and processes um, occur to make sure that they are able to receive the support that they need to help them make sure that they don't um, you know, engage in the harmful behavior that brought them there in the first place. Um, and then also to stick with the survivor as well to make sure that they feel cared for outside of the in and beyond the process. And so I think this is really, you know, um, sort of encouraging more people to be involved in the process, to deprofessionalize it also in many ways, um, away from, you know, I think the, so what's what's, you know, I'm working on a paper now um, about how a central idea of the jury selection process is to remove anyone with any sort of bias, right, from the jury, uh, from from being able to be seated on the jury, right? So um, often prosecutors are, are sort of targeting people who have had experiences of police violence or abuse, right? Because, you know, they might be biased because they have this perspective. And then defense attorneys even are trying to remove people who may have been victimized and have survived harm, right? Because they don't want the chance of them being on the jury um, and then sort of having their own experiences of being harmed influence the outcome um, for their client. And I think actually, you know, restorative justice is kind of actually saying we should do the opposite. And I think for for like a defense attorney, right, if we think of them in the current criminal legal system, that would be terrifying. But if we think about it in the restorative justice system, that would actually be great because there's no chance of a punitive, right, sentence or um, form of harm coming on their client. Instead, it would be a chance for them to hear what they did to a survivor and really hear how it affected them and then maybe change them much more positively. I mean, you know, in my book, I actually talk a lot about the fact that many defendants really do want to repair the harm that they caused. But the way that the current criminal legal system is set up, one of my uh, respondents, his name is Glasses, he described it as it's an us versus them kind of system. And in that system, I have no reason to share or admit my fault. In a restorative justice system, however, which he had sort of described wanting, he would have had that opportunity which would have been better for both him and the person he harmed. Your article gives a brief outline of how expensive mass criminalization as a systemic and institutional machine is. Alternatives to criminal surveillance and punishment will also require funding, but in the case of restorative practices like mediation, may be initially lengthier processes than those existing in criminal courts. What is your vision for resource allocation within an abolitionist framework? Um, I mean, I think to start off, um, so many, and like we're talking millions of cases a year, um, should not be brought into a system of punishment. I mean, abolition obviously is to, it's about the abolition of the, enti- the abolition of the entire system. But if we're talking about how to move forward with resource allocation, the first thing I would do would be to get, you know, decriminalize a ton of stuff. So like drugs, trespass, poverty related crimes, like just get them out of the system. 
Um, I don't even think, you know, for most of that, I don't think we need an accountability framework either. I think, I think we're talking about a very different thing. We need, we need social services, we need support. And just that in itself would mean a massive reallocation in a way that would free up resources to actually support people who, um, you know, maybe have substance use dependency or, um, are poor or, um, you know, are, don't have a house to live in. Um, so that's like where I would start. But when you put these numbers next to each other, the amount that we spend on criminalizing and punishing people just does really dwarf a lot of the alternatives that people are really talking about. Uh, but the first step has to be to bring down the scale and the size of the, of the system and to bring up in its place um, support for folks that actually get to the root causes of um, substance use, um, addiction, um, lack of housing, and those kinds of things. I mean, our misdemeanor system is massive. Um, and that's sort of what sort of Alexandra Nadipov talks about is sort of the bottom of the pyramid, right? And it is a pyramid and it is the bottom because it's the bigger part. Um, and that's the massive sort of waste of these loitering laws and these ridiculous things that we've criminalized that really, I think Amanda said it's spot on, don't need even a restorative or a mediative mediation program, you know, after the fact of them occurring, they need something different. Um, I also think too, it's important to understand that the criminal legal system is quite um, problematic in that it's basically criminogenic. Um, so people's contact with the criminal legal system makes it more likely that they're unable to get a job, that they're unable to do all sorts of things that then sort of remove them from the basic rights of citizenship um, and uh, make it so that they need to uh, do things that have been criminalized to continue to live and survive. Um, and so I think that uh, reducing uh, the number of people that we bring in contact with the criminal legal system would prevent um, a lot, a lot of forms of harm um, from reoccurring. Um, and then the other thing um, that I want to say is, you know, I think it, a little bit in this question is also kind of a political sort of question too, to some degree of, right, like how do we explain this to people or how do we get people politically on board? And I think, um, you know, there have been a lot of conversations around the politics of abolition and, you know, Democrats, of course, um, most of them have sort of come, you know, uh, around to sort of being completely against any sort of abolitionist politics, um, as we've learned in the past two years. Um, but I think actually politically, um, abolition is quite popular. You know, I'm doing this study now where I'm speaking to people who are court impacted and also who live in a neighborhood around a courthouse, but have never, you know, had any engagement with the courthouse other than walking by it. So they're not system impacted in any way. Um, lawyers, a bunch of different people. And a common thing that we're getting um, from these interviews, we ask a question about sort of, you know, in California, um, the, uh, the California spends $4 billion on, on courts um, every year, which funds, you know, prosecutors, public defenders and the like. Do you think California should spend more or less on courts? And the responses, most of them have been responses that are focused on, wow, that's a lot of money. Maybe we should spend it on other things like, you know, the unhoused population or getting services to people. And we get this from people who are system impacted and we get it from people who, you know, check conservative on the survey and, and then tell us this very sort of abolitionist to some extent sort of answer. Um, and so I think um, 
I think people are ready for thinking critically about different ways um, of spending money. And we see this in participatory budgeting too and, and the like. Your writing is not limited to the criminal legal system, but also spills into legal institutions and the legal profession itself. What is the role of lawyers and future lawyers in transforming the criminal court system? What can we do? Ah, this is such a good question. I'm glad we're ending on this one. Um, I mean, my first recommendation is a dose of humility and an understanding and recognition of the harm that our profession has wrecked upon millions of people um, and communities for like centuries now. <laughs> um, so I, I think that like we have to go into it with that and it's not going to be one brilliant idea or case or lawyer. Like that is just not the model of lawyering that it's going to, that's right for this movement in this, in this moment. Um, I think that l- lawyers What gets me excited about different kinds of lawyering right now is lawyering that is more modeled after or paired with organizing. So like the participatory defense movement that Matt and I talked about in our paper is really exciting. Lawyers have challenges taking direction from non-lawyers, I think, period. Um, And I think acknowledging that is really important. Um, uh, but but even so, leaning into being in places where mostly or a lot of non-lawyers are, um, I found that lawyers think about the law, but organizers think about power. Um, and I think in this movement, we need to be more focused on power than the law. So I, 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 humility is probably the, the biggest thing. And um, like not being in an... In, some kind of echo chamber that assumes the legitimacy of the system that you're working within. Um, and yeah, so I mentioned the participatory defense movement. The other, another thing that Matt and I wrote about a little bit that is exciting for me is like using organizing tactics in courtrooms. Um, so that includes, that could include like court watch. Like I think some of the public defenders in New York city have been working really closely with organizers around the Rikers jail, uh, ongoing crisis. Um, in a way that's really powerful, uh, but also like using lawyering, like filing a flurry of, of writs um, that might overwhelm the system. I think years ago, Michelle Alexander put forward an idea of um, forcing every case to go to trial, like actually exercising that constitutional right for clients in a way that would uh, make the system fail, basically. The system's not designed to do, even though that's an, you know, an enshrined right in our constitution. Um, So thinking about like organizing tactics around lawyering um, and working with organizers, but in a a way that um, really centers humility and not the legal system or your own skills as a lawyer. I love that. Uh, The only thing I would add is I think lawyers are also people um, who live lives as neighbors, uh, as parents, as, you know, community members. So they can organize teach-ins, they can, you know, help to organize mutual aid funds, they can donate to mutual aid funds, um, they can help to organize bail funds, uh, you know. So I think um, not forgetting all the many things that we can do as people who live in community with one another, not just in our professional roles to bring about abolition. But for better or for worse, like having that JD after your name means something to some people. It can get you meetings. It can get you in the door. You're, you know, you, some people 
have certain assumptions about your intellect. <laughs> like, I'm not saying all of this is uh, necessarily, uh, the, you know, correct or the right thing, but it does bring you, you, you have certain privileges um, by having that JD. And there are ways to use that privileges that can help open up doors to other people and bring other people to the table or demand more from people who have power and who see the power in your JD or believe that that instills some kind of power. So I think like thinking really strategically um, in conversation with non-lawyers about what that means and what that can bring to spaces um, can be really helpful too. Thank you so much for this illuminating conversation, expanding on your article, Courts and the Abolition Movement. It exposes the role of courts in perpetuating the punitive state and calls our attention to important changes that are within grasp for a different world. Thank you for bringing our attention to this topic and coming to speak about it on the CLR podcast. Thank you so much for publishing in our, our article, for having this podcast that you know brings hopefully these ideas to more people. Uh, it's awesome what you guys are doing. Thank you. Yeah, second that. Thanks so much uh, for this space um, and for sharing, you know, what's may often be siloed in an academic article. Uh, hopefully more people can read about and, and be inspired uh, by existing grassroots efforts um, that are happening on the ground and, and model them and repeat them in their own communities. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of the California Law Review podcast. If you would like to read Matt and Amanda's article, you can find it in Volume 110, Issue 1 of the California Law Review at californialawreview.org. For updates on new episodes and articles, please follow us on Twitter. You can also find a list of the editors who worked on this volume of the podcast in the show notes. If you are able to leave us a rating and review, we would greatly appreciate it. See you in the next episode.